My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. decades, thousands have reported a multitude of sightings and encounters. These witnesses have left us with a colorful cast of characters, from Nordic Adonises and their accompanying Nordic space vixens, to little green men, dragon-like reptoids, anonymous shadow specters, and men in black, all populating the paranoid and puzzling range of benevolent and malevolent E.T. encounters. But are they truly E.T.? Extra implies elsewhere, and today's guests suggest they've been here as long as we have. Far more terrestrial than we know, and in some cases, they may even be us. All of this and more in his new book, Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, where he makes the case that these beings have taken many forms and have lurked on the boundaries between life and death. They have helped us, harmed us, hindered us, and even shared their powers with us mere mortals. Joshua Cutchin is today's guest. He's the author of A Trojan Feast, The Brimstone Deceit, Thieves in the Night, where the Footprints End, Volumes 1 and 2, and now Ecology of Souls, Volumes 1 and 2. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and enjoy this conversation with Joshua Cutchin. It's interesting that you mentioned that about your grandfather that's a that's a that's an awesome story and i think it does underscore how you know because you say psychopop to people and half the people that you would say i have no idea what you're talking about but like these ideas still present themselves they just still manifest themselves human beings can can serve that role as well especially those who have passed on before or you know depending on you know the culture we'll use the term shamans broadly to describe medicine men and cunning women etc but but shamanic figures, you know, if they couldn't, if you were, if you were suffering from an illness, that was generally perceived to be some sort of spirit theft or that your spirit had wandered their first order of action was to try to retrieve your spirit. And if that failed, then they shifted duties and were like, okay, well, we're going to escort their soul over to the other side in a lot of these cultures, where they would go into a trance and sort of literally take your, 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 your soul to the afterlife. 
Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me for his first appearance is a very special guest, someone who I've known about for a few years now. I've heard him interviewed on several top-ranked podcasts, and here he is making his maiden debut on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to talk about not only his original book, Where the Footprints End, Volumes 1 and 2, but now updating his bibliography with Ecology of Souls, Volume 1 and 2. And as we were talking about before we started, I'm a big fan specifically of chapters 8 and 9, as you are as well, which is exciting. So Josh, let's get into it. I think people are probably familiar with you before. You're a Fortean uh, researcher, someone who's taken high strangeness and legitimized it with a very, very lengthy list of sources, which I appreciate. Your Bigfoot book is one of a kind in the sense that it takes the conventions of the Bigfoot conversation and turns them upside down and shows people how strange this stuff really is as much as the Jeff Meldrums of the world would like to make it a giant hairy monkey. I tend to agree with your interpretation that there is something much stranger afoot. So before I go off on my ramble here, Josh, how are you today? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Uh, we've got, as we were talking about earlier, we've got a plague in the house. So if I sound a little stuffy, uh, that's what that is. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm doing great, and it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, it's it's really really funny that you mentioned that about Bigfoot because I've been um, getting more involved with uh, boots on the ground folks. In fact, I was just out a week ago tomorrow uh, at an overnight bigfooting uh, uh, hunt. Big, whatever you want to call it. I hate saying squashing. <laughs> um, but like it's it's become really apparent to me the more I'm like getting firsthand uh interaction with a lot of people involved in the Bigfoot community, uh, that even the people who still are adhering to the flesh and blood hypothesis are will very quickly say off the record, yeah, but there's something about this that we just can't wrap our heads around. Right? Mm. There's something about it that doesn't conform to this. I still think it's this model, but something about it doesn't conform to this model. Um, right. You know, a great example was where I was Saturday night. Um, it was like one of the most active areas, active um, sites in, in the Carolinas. And uh, I was talking to some of the guys who had been there for a while who had had a lot of activity and like, you know, class A sightings and stuff like that. And they said, but you know what? They said, it's just not as active as it used to be because he put up the damn trail cams. <laughs> and sure enough, like there's just a, like you couldn't get away from trail cams there. And I didn't have diddly squat or should I say diddly squatch <laughs> happen to me. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's I feel like the, the community is finally starting to at least acknowledge this stuff, which is all that Tim Renner and I were really hoping is just like, just don't ignore it. You know, mm. don't write it off automatically. So, right. I'm sorry, I'm already off on a tangent here. No, no, so no. Much. Thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, the well, well needed tangent because you know, we haven't done a proper Bigfoot show, and I, I thought this might be it until I read Ecology of Souls, and then I said, no, I want to talk about what's freshest on Josh's mind. You have done amazing work on Bigfoot, but we're not going to spend uh, much time talking about it outside of maybe just now, but. It, one thing that maybe could be a segue 
is the stone tape theory. You, sh- you mm-hmm. heard that right, folks. Stone tape, not stone ape. The stone <laughs> right. tape theory. Now, this is fascinating to me, and it does sort of cross over into the Bigfoot realm because Bigfoot are often sighted in places where there are high amounts of mineral deposits, maybe limestone even, uh, quarries, caves, mountaintops. They're often seen in places where there's a fair amount of stone, and the stone tape theory, I don't know who originally coined that uh, term, but they posit that stone, certain types of stone, can record memories, actions, events in a sort of energetic, magnetic way, and then maybe replay those events for you know, future observers. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and that's something that I didn't really have as much time as I would have liked uh, to go into in Ecology of Souls, because anybody who looks at it can tell, like, it's big enough, right? I had to, like, cut I would have liked to have gone into, but we do have this underlying fundamental assumption in a lot of our cultures that, you know, ghosts equal dead people. And, uh, you know, I'm still partial to that idea. Uh, but just like UFOs and the extraterrestrial hypothesis, it is not without its failings. And I think that also like UFOs, the ghost thing might be a lot of different things. So it might be someone's leftover. It might be their spirit leftover. It might just be just a part of them like just the ego like maybe the true part of yourself actually is reincarnated and the ego sticks around um but you know another one of those things is is this stoned sorry i keep on want to say stoned ape too stone tape hypothesis um which i can't re- honestly recall who came up with it either um and i don't think that the mechanism has ever been really accurately described but at the same time we do know that uh obviously certain elements can hold certain charges Um, we do know that there's a close correlation between uh, some electrical activity and certain minerals uh, the the piezoelectrical qualities that you see in things like quartz when they're struck with a hammer so sort of energetic relationship there the frustrating thing about things like the stone tape hypothesis is if you ask you know 20 different parapsychologists what mineral you're probably going to get about 10 to 15 different answers. You know what I mean? Because some people do say limestone, which I'm a fan of because it's, you know, organic material to begin with. But, you know, you'll also hear granite thrown out there a lot. And, you know, uh, to your point, uh, you know, there's so many granite deposits in Pennsylvania um, and such a strong amount of, of Bigfoot activity there too. It seems like there's something there. So the idea that I end up having is that like, it's not just one thing. Or if it is one thing, one quality, it has to be in really sufficient amount to generate some sort of activities. What I mean by that is, okay, yeah, if you have a mass grave, you're probably going to get a haunting. If you have one dead person and a lot of limestone and it's near an underground stream, then maybe you'll also get So it, it could be like some sort of additive threshold that has to be reached. But I think that the uh, the stone tape idea, or even just more broadly, the idea that our energies can leave impressions on things uh, goes quite a way to explain how not only some of these ghosts seem to not be intelligent, you know, they just play out their actions and continue walking through walls where there used to be a hallway, but now there's a wall, but also explains how these things can be transferred. You know, a lot of people jump to the idea that, you know, don't buy something from goodwill because it might be demonically possessed or something. 
but I think, you know, just as easily you could say, oh, it just has the impressions of, of the owner or something behind it. Mm. So, yeah. Right. Right. And it is aptly named the ecology of souls because we're not dealing with a monolithic type of, uh, you know, we're not dealing with a monolithic phenomena here. We're dealing with a entirety of the human experience with death and with the paranormal. And I love that you started off with a really interesting quote from Chris Knowles that goes something like, you know, you, you don't often encounter the paranormal without death being somewhere in the background or the foreground. Uh, he probably said it differently, but that's essentially what he's saying. And I think there is a grave seriousness to many of these you know, what we would probably think of as not so serious encounters with fairies and um, ghosts. I mean, the poltergeist activity, yes, that seems a little more strange and maybe a little more dangerous where you have things flying around your house. But I think American culture has sort of uh, watered it down to the point where now it's, cor it's, cor it's corned into the the realm of children's imagination and i think where we should start is the difference or the lack of difference between the imaginal realm and the real realm and how even some old cultures don't even have a distinction really between the two and you know their imagination is not seen as as some sort of uh, fantasy well the idea of the imaginal versus the imaginary is something that I try to employ uh, from time to time throughout Ecology of Souls, and I think it's a really useful way to describe, as I put it. This is not this is not the uh, the textbook definition, but as I put it, the imaginal is in your head. Sorry, I can't see. I mix it up. the The imaginal is from your head, but not in your head. If that makes any sense. Um, so what I mean by that specifically is that the appearance of a lot of these phenomena seems very much dependent upon culture. Um, it seems very much dependent upon our own personal biases and our own personal expectations. Um, and this is sort of tying with some ideas that one of my mentors, Greg Bishop, has been a champion of lately, which is this idea that somehow these phenomena co-create us. And I'm of the personal opinion, I don't have anything to back this up yet, but I'm of the personal opinion that a lot of these phenomena, probably if, if you could distill them to their truest form, uh, they're probably the lights. I mean, I don't know if you've ever played old computer games, but every now and then when I was, you know, in high school, I'd be playing games on computer, there would be a text file that would be corrupted. And like, so where the texture should be on the wall, it's just like a, just like a wall of or something, or a wall like a placeholder color. And I kind of think sometimes that that's what the lights are. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the imaginal is, I think the textbook definition is something along the lines of a boundary realm between two worlds that are each structured according to their own sort of conventions that unfold according to a certain amount of causality. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, one of the examples that I like to use is, um, you know, characters in a play or something. Uh, the scenario is uh, always in a play or a film fictional, right? Um, but you can see, for example, a love affair fall apart 
in a film and it could have never happened, but it could have been like, but it could be like the truest depiction of that that you ever seen. You know what I mean? And by extension, you know, the emotions that you feel, the emotions that are engendered by this completely imaginary thing are indeed actually real to you. Like you can't quantify them you can't measure them, but you still feel as if you're in that situation. So I guess we're sort of ver verging on the edge of like simulation ideas, but that's sort of the rough way that I break down imaginal versus imaginary. Mm. And imaginal is something that draws upon, in addition to your own personal biases, the, the sort of union collective unconscious that we all share and don't really realize we share actively right. as human beings. Right. It is tantalizing to use the uh, technology analogy. The simulation has made its way into the, the consciousness. And uh, I, I'm a little more in favor of the organic interpretation, but there is an organic interpretation to computers if you really go back far enough, right? So uh, maybe co-creation rather than simulation is a better place to pivot because I feel like we're all aware of our co-creative abilities to some some degree we've all experienced uh a sort of mild telepathy where someone's staring at you and you realize it that's a co-creative mm -hmm. yep, yep. you know action right there 100 percent. you know the examples that i like to use i mean even if you're not artistically inclined everybody has doodled and and that's something you're bringing something out of that imaginal realm into the real even though you're not actually making a horse you're you know doodling a horse and even though it might not look, not look great you've brought something from your mind into reality and that of course is you know just simple magic yeah and i i tend to think that animals in particular skirt that realm in an interesting way like you can have an encounter with an animal in the wild that feels like a dream I mean, I, I can attest to this. I've had several. One of them, I was on uh, psychedelics on top of a mountain that I later found out is a sacred mountain around here with a couple different ceremonial sites on top of it. And I'm sitting there on a rock and a deer comes over to me and, and sort of stares at me. I'm like five foot above it, you know, on this big tall rock sitting down very, very still. And this deer and I had a moment of just surreal you know the the sun was setting the mm -hmm. light was glowing through the trees and it just stared at me and i be, beheld this amazing sight in front of me and it's moments like that that make you realize a either nature's way more magical than we're told in school or b uh you know maybe i was tapping into something right it definitely brings up a bunch of questions but i was really excited when I saw that deer are a part of your ecology of souls and they sort of play a big role in certain cultures as psychopomps or, or beings that lead people to the underworld or the afterlife. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting that you bring this up because I was kind of, I just actually speaking of Chris Knowles, had a conversation with him on yeah. Wednesday night and we sort of Got in a little bit of a loggerhead on the Bigfoot thing, not that he was mostly playing devil's advocate and I was trying to emphasize how much this high strangeness regarding Bigfoot had been suppressed. But he made the point that, you know, he's had also interactions with animals that have really seemed to really get close to being numinous, you know, to use a fancy, fancy schmancy uh, academic term. 
And, you know, we used to realize this. We used to realize that animals can be animals and they can also be vectors for something more. I mean, just as the way that human relationships, like a human can be someone that you, you just are walking down the street, but depending on, you know, circumstances completely within their control, they can be a vector for love or compassion or, or hate or, you know, or any number of things. So I think that's something that we, that we used to really, as a, as a species ourselves, we used to really, you know, pay attention to that. Not so much anymore, but uh, a good example of, of how the, these things tend to skirt that line, which is a great way of putting it is the psychopomps, as you alluded to. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that caught my attention early on when I was really getting back into, or getting in earnest into the UFO subculture um, was the work of, someone who I now call a dear friend, Mike Clellan, um, who I don't know if you are familiar with his work, but he talks about UFOs and owls. And I know Mike very well. And Mike has never, has never made any indication that he thinks every owl is somehow related to UFOs, right? Like he realizes that there are physical owls that, you know, eat, breathe shit, like all all those things. But at the same time, some of these owl interactions are really uncanny and strange. And whether that means it's the actual owl being used by strange metaphysical phenomena like UFOs, or whether that means that, you know, the metaphysical powers, I'm being very vague here, uses the image of the owl. Either way, sometimes that distinct just a flesh and blood animal and something more meaningful does get blurred clearly. Um, and I'll be damned. Owls are another one of these psychopop figures like the deer that you mentioned. Um, if you look through uh, sort of indigenous cultures worldwide, you'll find, I mean, again, uh, birds, dogs, and horses as psychopomps. But they do vary with from region to region. And in, in Norse cultures especially, you might find an association uh, of deer with uh, with psychopomp functions, especially stat. Um, you know, because they have that association with Odin. I guess we should probably define what a psychopomp is. Um, so a psychopomp is is any figure that leads you across the threshold from life into death. And we culturally know this most often as the Grim Reaper, right? Like that's very much in our pop culture consciousness. But, you know, these can be deities. They can be folk figures, um, deities like Anu. Uh, Hermes, like these are all common psychopomps. Odin had some psychopomp functions. Psychopomp is almost like it's not an identity so much as it is a duty, you know. So there are some characters that are just psychopomps, but there are some characters that pull double duty, like Hermes and like Odin. Right. It's a role. Um, right. And uh, but also natural phenomena. So the sun, the moon, the aurora borealis, and as we've been talking about here, animals. And what I find really interesting, because I always suspected that there might be some sort of UFO psychopomp connection, or at the very least, you know, paranormal phenomena psychopomp connection. But it really is uncanny to look at the number of, of UFO encounters that include these psychopomp animals. Like we've already alluded to, you know, Mike's work with owls and UFOs. But, you know, dogs are a, are a recurring figure in a lot of UFO contact. Um Horses are, you know, to a little bit of a lesser degree, um, but also, yeah, I mean, deer, one of the f- most famous examples that uh, Bud Hopkins talked about. Your mileage of Bud Hopkins may vary. Mine certainly does. <laughs> but one of the most famous uh, abductees that he studied was Virginia Horton, who had a memory of following a deer into a forest and emerging, you know, emerging bloodied uh, and under hypnotic regression revealed that 
you know, again, hypnotic regression, your mileage may vary, but she revealed under hypnotic regression that she had actually uh, encountered what she called, what she thought were extraterrestrials as part of her ongoing contact. So you see the deer in that scenario there, <laughs> this sci-fi extraterrestrial UFO scenario, you see the deer occupying the exact same role that it has for literally millennia leading someone from our reality into another, which is the same function of the psychopomp. You find these sort of uh, fairy deer in a lot of fairy stories, where oftentimes they'll sort of lure a hunter into the forest where they might encounter a maiden or something, or vice versa, lure a maiden into the forest where they encounter, you know, a fairy king or some person trapped by the fairies, often the dead people trapped by fairies. So it's just interesting to me that these old motifs keep on playing out again and how a lot of the quote unquote mainstream researchers just don't really want to view it through that mythopoetic lens, that quasi-religious spiritual lens. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's changing a little bit. I don't know. Mm. Well, and, and I really do give it up to folks like yourself who come from the academic realm and venture into that territory. I myself dropped out of college and I think my mind was saved by books like The Secret History of the World by Mark <laughs> Booth because it gave me an interest in history that didn't like sterilize everything, right? It gave me a view of history that wasn't so uh, watered down and, and dense, you know, and not that you can't find those sorts of things in the academia. Of course you can. It's just way less accessible than, you know, what, what the New Age community sort of purports. And and I'm not uh, a proponent of the New Age information altogether. I think you need to sift through that with mm -hmm. just as much skepticism, but Absolutely, the idea yeah. that, that there was a sacred or a spiritual version of history was so incredibly uh, motivational for me as like a curious mind, like, wow, okay, there is another version. Let's go into this. And and I, I, I appreciate the work you've done in Ecology of Souls so much because it, it shows people that, you know, the emphasis might have been misplaced. We tend to emphasize the characters. We tend to emphasize the players. And I think Ecology of Souls shows the arena where the actions are taking place might be just as valuable to understand or, or equally uh, as potent. Like the idea that, you know, when we pass, we enter a different reality that's like a mirror to our own. I mean, this is something that's conveyed in so many different old cultures, as you write in your book, and, and uh, the Book of the Dead, which was another big read for me when I was younger, uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the Bardo process. And I mean, when I read that as a young man, it didn't feel like my intuition, like my intuition was like, wow, you just read truth. And this, that was a rare experience, right? And you confirm, like, I mean, you kind of make the same point in the in the book that the Bardo, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Tibetan full name of that book, it confirms itself in its genuineness. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Well, first of all, um, congratulations on breaking free from academia. I, on the other hand, somehow um, got over and made it out on the skate that wound up with two master's degrees um but it was interesting you know being in postgrad for that long and seeing the number of people who their takeaway was how to think as a sorry what to think as opposed to how to think you know um 
And then I worked at the University of Georgia for three years. And man, there is nothing else that will sour you on academia more than being in a staff position at a major university, oh, like seeing man. how the sausage is made. And I'm not like, I'm, I don't want to pay with too broadly a brush because obviously you can tell from my work, there's, I honor that academic process and footnotes and endnotes and references and, you know, backing up what you say. And there are plenty of, of you know, uh, people who are tenured academics in my life my academic life, but also in my professional life now, whom I admire to, you know, to the moon and back, but monolithically the institution itself has a lot of problems. Um, but, you know, speaking directly to that sort of Bardo stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting because pretty much anybody who has a background in the actual accounts of near death experiences takes a look at that that text and uh the bardo total fodal I, I i i'm taking the flack for you for mispronouncing it but the tibetan book of the dead looks at that text and says oh this looks this looks really accurate um you know two that come to mind are gregory shushan who is um a, a near-death experience researcher who specializes in ancient and indigenous cosmologies um and how the near-death experience was presented in those and, and manifests almost identically in modern near-death experiences um he, he, he was like, yes, much like what happens. And so was, you know, Carl Jung, um, who had, you know, I mean, we think of Jung as a psychiatrist, but he might as well be a, thought of as a mystic, you know, I mean, his, he believed in some very strange things, it seems, and he at least entertained the idea of a lot of these phenomena. And he too thought that uh, what he read in the Tibetan Book of the Dead was so close to what he had heard from these experiences that it seems as if they indeed did sort of, uh, break that barrier between worlds mm. and then you talk about the bardo and it takes us into you know uh, psychedelics and entheogens and uh all that stuff too well um, and even even the you know to to point at young again he compares the the modern ufo mythos as uh i think the sharon from the greek uh, which is I, a psychopomp so I finally broke down and I'm like, I just typed it in Google. I'm like, fuck, how do you pronounce C-H-A-R-O-N? And it's, it's Karen. Karen. Which, <laughs> so yeah, I, I want to make a meme that has a guy on a ferry and it says, don't be a Karen, right? <laughs> but yeah, Karen. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those. So like, I feel like a lot of my work and this is, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to brag here, but I just feel like this is what I, I'm noticing as I'm doing this is a lot of what I do is stuff that people have talked about, but they've just like talked about in passing. Like they've mentioned it like in a sentence or in a paragraph and they move on. And, and a lot of what I try to do is go, no, wait, 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 back up. <laughs> like, let's explore that. Let's unpack it. And sure enough, um, you know, in his 1958 essay on flying saucers, which I think should be required reading for anybody who's interested in UFOs, um, Jung mentions in passing uh, you know, the idea that UFOs might be some sort of Karen is not one that I have uh, found in the literature so far. And nobody really, you know, took that and ran with it. Um, I guess, you know, I guess until now, but that's the sort of thing that I like to to drill down on and say, okay, let's see how far we can take this and see if maybe we might learn something from it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and it, it, it quickly gets into uncomfortable territory for a lot of people. You know, I mean, if you walk down to some walk up to someone on the street and you say, I think UFOs might take us to the other side, <laughs> I'll be like, OK, you know, or the idea that, you know, you, you alluded to the mirror, the mirrored quality of the afterlife. Uh, if you say, you know, I think that the afterlife might be a mirror 
image of our own that's capable of its own technological evolution. It's like, okay, so you think people can build machines in the afterlife that cross that threshold? You're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's backed up in a lot of the indigenous stuff. Um, it was a surprisingly early idea that a lot of ufologists across uh, the pond in England played with. You can find this idea referenced as far back as the 50s. But, you know, American ufologists just didn't really want to talk about it that much. Mm. Yeah, there was a story in your book, uh, very short, where somebody was walking their dog in a field, a UFO lands or hovers near them, their dog, their cows all freeze, and some naked humanoid-looking aliens come out, and from the ship you hear, I am Jimmy Hoffa, I am Jimmy Hoffa, and I'm thinking to myself, like, who is that? Like, I want to know about that guy that saw that UFO. What's his world like? I personally, I have had a, a firsthand experience with a, uh, a psychopomp, if you will, and I didn't think about it until uh, this, com or I was looking through this book, but uh, two or three years ago when my grandfather passed away, about a week before his passing, uh, I was recording my conversations with him just because I had the feeling like he's not going to be around for much longer. And he woke up one morning and told me this dream that his old best friend who had passed away 20, 30 years ago was sitting in a familiar place. He didn't know where it was. And his friend told him, you know, Fred, you're going to die. You know, I'm going to see you very soon. And my Pepe knew, like he knew with his, like, you know, the way mm -hmm. he stared me in the eyes, like he was going to die. And it was a very, I mean, it's been some years now, but it was a very moving, powerful moment for me. And now I'm kind of realizing that his friend played the role of a psychopomp in that dream. It's incredible. Yeah, that's that's something that I left out. Um, human beings can, can serve that role as well, especially those who have passed on before or, you know, depending on, you know, the culture. We'll use the term shamans broadly to describe medicine men and cunning women, et cetera. But, but, um, you know, shamanic figures, you know, if they couldn't, if you were, if you were suffering from an illness, it was generally perceived to be some sort of spirit theft or that your spirit had wandered And their first order of action was to try to retrieve your spirit. And if that failed, then they shifted duties and were like, okay, well, we're going to escort their soul over to the other side in a lot of these cultures where they would go into a trance and sort of literally take your, your, your soul to the afterlife. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about your grandfather. That's a that's a that's an awesome story, and I think it does underscore how you know because you say psychopomp to people, and half the people that you would say I have no idea what you're talking about. But like these ideas still present themselves; they still manifest themselves. And you know, there are a lot of these contemporary near death experiences that if you read them, it's like, oh, you met Odin. <laughs> you know, not that I'm saying that there's some sort of like, you know uh objectivity to the norse pantheon or anything but but you can see these archetypes showing up again oh you met odin oh you met you know anubis you know you see this time and again i had a, I had a good friend of mine allier his grandfather and he uh we you know we've been talking about ecology it wasn't quite out yet and but he you know we talked about the idea of the bird being a psychopomp in addition to being you know expression of the soul um we talk about a lot of ideas being universal, but like the idea that the, that the soul appears as a bird is literally universal. Like every indigenous people across the world made that connection. So red and I were talking about this and he made a mention that his, uh, his 
at his grandfather's death, he was always really impressed by walking into the home and there was a raven that was sitting on his grandfather's old boat. And I said, Ren, but you, I said, it gets even better than that. Like you're the Ren was sorry. The Raven was my friend's name is Ren. This is a Raven. I said, Ren, the Raven was sitting on your grandfather's old boat. Like that's double trouble because the boat is in terms of inanimate objects, like the most potent psychopop symbol. Um, again, we alluded to Karen, but you know, Odin was a ferryman in some of these um, stories. Fer- uh, boats and mo- modes of transportation like that show up in near-death experiences. Um, that's probably why horses were considered psychopomps, is because they could carry you. I think it's really interesting once you take that idea like, oh, so transportation is a psychopomp theme. And then you look at the UFO phenomenon, which is entirely obsessed with transportation, right? Like, where do they come from? Where are they going? Where are they going to take me? Why are they here? It's all obsessed with transportation. And so look at it through that lens yeah of, of course the ufo can be viewed as a psychopomp symbol i don't know if it literally objectively is but it can at least be i think it's a more legitimate interpretation than a lot of people would be comfortable with yeah it certainly feels like it's appropriate to blur the lines when these things are so blurry to begin with like this yeah. compartmentalization of ideas is really i think a, a holdover from the Carl Linnaeus, you know, type of combing through these things. And there's a use for classification, but I think what your book does so well is it shows how, A, many of our occult uh, giants, people who've written about these things, they've been thinking about these ideas. I mean, you really, when you're reading Ecology of Souls, you're reading Jung, you're really reading Le Coteau, you're reading Devereaux, you're, re- you know, you're reading all these people uh, with your thoughts intermixed and you're showing how, you know, these things are far more connected than we've given credit. And, and, you know, even fairies are, I mean, you, you put, you put a, you don't, you don't conclude anything, which also, I love that too. You give a couple options. So let's, let's go through the options with the fairies real quick, unless you, I mean, I'm sure everybody's familiar with fairies, but if you'd mm-hmm. like, you maybe given introduction on this because you you spent some time researching this phenomena for your from where the footprints end books right with sasquatch Mm. and their connection to fairies but it seems that fairies also could have a a really close connection to us as human beings maybe in our ancient past or maybe even as a the next phase you know where we go Mm. in the afterlife maybe we become fairies and live in little fairy villages yeah it's uh so so I, I know a lot of people probably would think that I'm a fence sitter or something for not coming to conclusions, but I've always tried to avoid what Greg Bishop calls uh, the certainty finish. And then like people who are into UFOs and cryptids and ghosts and stuff they're they've been marginalized for so long and told that they're deluded for so long that they, they quickly adopt that certainty finish because they want to prove that something is this or that. And, I think at the end of the day, we just need a more diverse set of hypotheses presented, you know, um, so that we can pivot whenever one seems to show more promise. So I appreciate that you noticed that. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the fairy thing. Um, yeah, I've had a longstanding interest. My Honestly, I was probably interested in the fairy stuff before I was interested in the UFO stuff um, until I realized that it was the same thing. Right. And, and I can defend that position. I won't do it right now because I won't even do our time. But uh, the the fairy dead thing is something that I've been thinking about for a while because, well, to that point of, of the UFO phenomena being a modern expression of these older fairy folklore beliefs, 
1969, Jacques Vallée re- released Passport to Magonia. Um, it's a foundational text to the way that I look at things. But I think in that book, he handily illustrates that uh, a lot of this modern UFO phenomena is is a reworking of fairy folklore worldwide, actually. But if you really want to drill down and get a little bit more specific, Western Europe in particular. Um, since then, I found a lot of a lot of correspondences that that Valet left on the table. But the fact that he made that connection, I think, is really important. Um, but the thing that I say haunts the background of Passport to Magonia, and that is the lingering question of what would a 13th century version of Passport to Magonia look like and what sort of connections would they be trying to draw? I would argue that where Passport to Magonia says, hey, look, this UFO stuff looks a lot like the fairy stuff, an older version a medieval version of Passport to Magonia would have said, hey, look, this fairy stuff looks a lot like the way that we talked about the dead. And that's not an especially like insightful revelation on my part. There are, um, I believe there's a gentleman by the name of, I believe it's Lewis Spence, um, who basically had a book that was just talking about the similarities between uh, fairies and the dead. But, you know, even contemporary co- scholars will say that, look, prior to theosophy, you know, prior to the late 19th century, cultures that thought about the fairies typically didn't think of them as nature elementals or any of these things that we like to think of them as today. They were always closely associated with the dead. And if you go back and look at the older fairy stories, not fairy tales, but fairy stories that supposedly come from firsthand interactions from informants in Western Europe and whatnot, you'll find that all the time. You'll find, as you alluded to, that people might die and become fairies. Uh, They might die and be seen with the fairies. You know, the number of stories where somebody has taken fairyland and they're about to eat or drink in fairyland which is a bad idea because you'll be stuck there forever the stories where that narrative unfolds and the person is stopped from eating or drinking by someone who died in their village the year prior it's just a it's a common recurring theme and there are some indications here and there that they might have served um psychopomp functions uh Gwynep Nud, the welsh uh fairy king sort of changed as a lot of these for pagan deities did from you know, a pagan god or goddess into a fairy king or queen, but he still retained his duties of collecting souls. And to that extent, a lot of uh, fairy phenomena, by which I mean large black dogs, um, anomalous lights, things like that, or even just the act of seeing the fairies or a fairy funeral, um, a fairy funeral procession, any of these things might serve as death omens. And so there's been this long-standing connection between fairies and the dead that has gotten washed away along with everything else as it became Disney-fied. You know, oh, fairies are helping the plants. I watch too much Fantasia and they're little women with wings that have, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not, the actual folklore does not suggest that. It suggests something that, while I wouldn't go so far as to say malicious, is at the very least caprice and quite dangerous, but does always have this connection uh, to the dead. And that's equally clear in uh, where they tend to congregate. A lot of these fairy sites are old human dwellings, and that really does beg the question as to whether or not, you know, oh, did the fairies move in, or are these people who just never left? Mm. Wow, yeah, that's particularly where I was hoping we'd get to, because... All across New England, where I live, I live in Connecticut, in the southern part of Connecticut, but all across New England, there are stone structures, menhirs, stone circles, I mean, stone chambers, uh, standing stone walls that are, you know, miles and miles and miles long. And my interest in 
local history started with the question of how old are these stone walls? Because you see them everywhere. They're in people's front yards. They're in people's backyards. They're on, you know, hiking trails. They're everywhere. And some of them look very old. And we've found examples of stone rows that are clearly Native American mm-hmm. construction or have signs, evidence that they're very old. And there's a feeling in these areas, specifically the ones that are sort of isolated in the woods. Um, and the cairns, which also dot the landscape, have a much older origin and an association with fairies and Hermes, which we uh, mentioned briefly. We mentioned Hermes, but Hermes kind of has this association as the um, the god of roads, uh, the god of these cairns. So mm-hmm. can we get into that a little bit and, and talk to talk to that point? Yeah, well, so the connection between in the old in the old world, the connection between fairies and just hills, mountains, etc., um, is probably of origin. Probably that origin probably lies in beliefs regarding the dead. Um, it was often conceptualized that the dead would live under hills or inside mountains. There's even some indication amongst some Norse scholars that Valhalla. Actually, its roots came from meaning, you know, mountain, you know, hall being rock. Um, you do find a lot of allusions to the, the hills and the mountains being the domains of the dead. And that right there is interesting that fairies have such an association with these sites. But also, there's a lot of confusion, um, especially in, you know, Western Europe, uh, regarding how many of these hills are natural and how many are actually burial tumuli. Some people say that the idea that the fairies have a, a, mass, a massive amount of wealth inside their fairy hills is actually an allusion to uh, grave goods, treasure buried with the dead. And sure enough, you'll find that uh, people will see is around a hill, and when the hill is eventually excavated, it's revealed not to be a hill, but actually a, a burial monument. So there's that connection, and I, I, find, it, I find it especially compelling that... If you take a look at, see, I'm, I'm down here in the Southeast. If you take a look at a lot of the Cherokee uh, mythology, it just reads like something straight. Now, some people might say, you know, that there was some sort of old world influence pre-Columbian. I'm, I'm not necessarily dismissing that, but I find it equally, if not more interesting that, no, the reason that the, the Cherokee were describing this identically to the Irish and the English and the Scottish is because they were describing something objectively true that they were interacting with. Um, and man, just some of the, the Nanehi stories that you get from the Cherokee, um, the Cherokee legends is just, they're just, they're just incredible. Um, and there's a strong association with these tumuli again in, uh, in the American Southeast, there's missing time in Nanehi stories. In some Nanehi stories, there's the indication that they do help you go to the afterlife. There's even a Nanehi story where uh, the the Nanehi fairies visit a village and they say, hey, if some of you want to go with us, that's cool, but we're going to be moving our townhouse, our mound, in a week. And everybody has to be quiet here or it's not going to work. And the appointed time comes and the sound of the the mound flying through the air which again what does that sound like the sound of the mound flying through the air um scares everyone and they shriek and so the mound tumbles to the ground where supposedly it still stands to this day i haven't 
call looking for it myself, but uh, that's the mound at Setsi uh, in, I believe, Western North Carolina. So, you know, some people will look at that and again, they'll have that ancient aliens impulse and they'll say, oh, well, it was obviously a UFO. And it's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should, that that's an okay hypothesis. I get where it comes from. Sure. Interesting. Let's also turn the idea on its head and say that these things are not aliens, but what we perceive as being aliens are actually these these other sort of spirit-based phenomena that, that are that are carryovers from, from the ecology of souls, trademark. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I do prefer this interpretation. It feels more organic, it feels more human for some reason. Maybe that's just my own perspective. But uh I do believe you had another story uh in North Carolina, or at least it takes place in North Carolina around Pilot Mountain and a big stone door that uh, these fairies uh, said like, hey, you know, there's going to be a lot of war and sickness. Maybe you guys want to come live with us underground. And they went through a stone door and Pilot Mountain. And what really struck me with this is past guest on this show, Peter Shampoo, uh, has written a book called Gaia Matrix, which you might be familiar with. And it talks about ley lines, but also lay circles and he doesn't use the term lay uh he prefers sort of the energy concept uh he's a dowser and a stonemason peter shampoo but he talks about at pilot mountain there is a convergence of six or seven energy you know lines in this sort of what he describes as a biome right and that biome is a circle that centers at pilot mountain and the great smoky mountains is the diameter of that circle the the length of the great smoky mountains so he's saying that you know the energy much to what we were talking about before about the arena or at least what i said about the arena being more interesting than the players themselves in some cases like we have these ley lines these magnetic or electric energies that are passing through an area uh maybe this is where the the you know charge is created that we tap into as co-creative beings to experience maybe what is invisible when we're not there right or or what what's there when when we're not there because <laughs> how do we know you it's... know I, yeah no I, th- I think you're absolutely onto something there um and I wasn't aware of that, but that's fascinating. Yeah, the the ley lines thing is just interesting in the way that, I mean, there's obviously something to it, right? Um, I find it kind of frustrating that I feel like I again I ask ten different lay hunters and I get ten different <laughs> locations of these things, but I think that, that the idea is is really sound and it's been with us and continues with us and just won't go away. And um, you know, even in uh i was i was shocked to find this but even prior to alfred watkins discussing ley lines i mean obviously you've got the chinese dragon paths and all that stuff it's an old idea but like in evan evans wentz's um fairy faith in celtic countries in 1911 he speaks to i believe it's an irish informant who basically says that she thinks that the fairies appear along these magnetic currents in the earth and i'm like that's that's really really early for that idea to be showing up and to specifically bring the magnetism into it. And, you know, this is where people might fall into the reductive trap, right? Um, Because there's some sort of overlap between telluric and ley lines and fault lines. Um, And people have said that, well, you know, as we alluded to earlier, the piezoelectrical qualities along these fault lines might be able to generate magnetism. And sure enough, there do seem to be anomalous lights that happen along these fault lines. 
So people take that bit of information and they take, you know, those Dan Michael Persinger <laughs> experiments, which a lot of people don't talk about, but have are unreplicable. They haven't been replicated as to my knowledge. Um, but this idea that significant amounts of magnetism with Persinger's God helmet um, generates senses of entities near you and, and things like that. And they say, okay, well, that explains the paranormal. And they sort of dust off their hands. Uh, but they never stop to ask whether or not this magnetism, much like I think you and I would both agree uh, regarding some entheogens, they never stop to ask whether it's not whether or not this is actually a mechanism for perceiving into something objectively real, you know. And I find I find it interesting that if if these ley lines do correspond to these um, ancient sites, which I mean most of them had to have had, you know, ritual and shamanic functions. Um, not only could the this magnetism amplify uh, a seer's abilities to actually interact with these objective other intelligences, but the appearance of strange lights along such areas would certainly reinforce the validity of the seer's experiences in the eyes of observers, too. You know, oh, well, you said that you went into a trance and saw a fairy. Well, while you were doing that, we were watching these lights bob along the hill, you know, that sort of thing. So I think it's it's really interesting when you take all that and then you combine it with some other things that seem to have some connection like, you know, epilepsy. Um, there's a strong correlation between epilepsy and, uh, you know, the Asiatic shaman traditions specifically. Um, and it starts to sort of look like, well, maybe this, maybe we're confusing the room with, the, maybe we're confusing the the key with the room it unlocks, right? You know, people mm. who just say it's, oh, it's just all magnetism affecting the brain. They're saying, oh, look, the key is the room. And it's like, no, the key opens up the room and there's stuff in the room. Right. The key's just a way to get into it. Yeah. Right. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah. That's, I think that's a really uh, apt way of describing it. You know, this, this is the, the confusion of the intangible, you know, we want to, we want to have that uh, conclusive definitive-ism about everything, the certainty <laughs> that you described earlier. But what's really fascinating is whether this key room debate exists or not, you can't debate that people build stone structures, especially ancient stone structures, in places where this magnetic energy tends to be very heightened. I mean, here in the New England area, we have what's called a diamagnetic landscape because of all the granite. Whereas in, in maybe a place like uh, Panama, we have like a paramagnetic landscape because the, the, you know, concentration of minerals is different. And what a past guest uh, who's an architect was describing to me is that in these diamagnetic environments, the stones have a different property. You can maybe levitate them under the right circumstances. And you'd have to imagine that, okay, maybe there are points in that diamagnetic landscape where that energy is at a maximum or it's at its peak, right? So we find as human beings these peak sites, and then we go and we utilize the energy that's already there to move the stones and create these things mm -hmm. that seem unexplainable because we don't have the key to the room to explain it. Yeah. And we have so many fallacies, like in addition to just language being such a clunky tool, like we 
I think we often mistake chickens and eggs a lot more than we than we like, you know. Uh, and and the idea that that no, the, the site wasn't built there because it was special. The the site, sorry, the structure wasn't built there because the site was special. The structure couldn't have been built anywhere else because it could only be built at this site. I think is an interesting way to look at it that not a lot of people would consider sort of reversing the. Uh, reversing the qualifications for for erecting something like that mm. and again this is this is part of the reason that he, so I, so I, i'll be honest like the subtitle for ecology of souls a new mythology of death and the paranormal i resisted putting in there for a long time because new mythology sounds really pretentious like it's being really comprehensive or something but then i just deep into this I'm like no it really is comprehensive because then you start to look at like these ley lines and uh the insistence across a lot of cultures that spirits travel in straight lines and it seems that part of what they're describing is this ley line function that perhaps is not the only way that spirits can travel but maybe the path of least resistance and you'll find uh all throughout europe that there is this belief that uh spirits do travel in straight lines you'll often find the road between the cemetery and the churchyard is is perfect and nothing should be erected along along it which of course brings into the idea of fairy paths, right? And how you shouldn't build a f- house across a fairy path. But it's also the idea where we get uh, dream catchers and we get witches' bottles and we get labyrinths. The, the idea that the spirits get lost in this complexity. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, one of the ways in uh, South Carolina uh, folklore among the Gullah people is that uh, if you have a, a boo hag, you know, a, a sleep paralysis sort of hag, old crone figure. Uh, you, you can prevent sleep paralysis by putting a colander or a broom on your front porch and the boo hag will get distracted by like counting the holes in the colander or by counting the straws on the broom. Spirits seem to be arrested by complexity. And so you have this idea of the straight lines and spirits needing to travel in straight lines and spirits traveling between these uh, sacred sites used for rituals. And you also have, um, and again, this idea is not exclusively European. There are these roads called Sekbeab in, uh, I believe, Colombia. They're, they're throughout like Central America and, and Upper South America. And there are these straight lines that just travel between sites and they don't deviate. They just go right across um, rugged terrain when it would be easier to go around. Um, so you have the, this, this straight line idea and the spirits traveling a straight line idea and this ley line idea. And then you start to place that against the modern UFO thing. And you see this idea that was popular in the sixties. It fell out of favor, but I think it still has some interesting explicative power of orthotony, which is exactly like the ley line thing. The idea that UFOs travel along these lines that as any line mapped on a globe would be is actually a circle, right? As you alluded to with the lay circles and uh, the idea fell out of favor. It was it was put forth by this French ufologist by the name of Ami Michel, and it fell out of favor because it was proven to be, well, sorry, Michel's specific examples were proven to the were proven to be possibly the result of chance. But the idea again, I think, still has power because you do hear about these sharp ninety degree turns in UFO sightings, and it certainly. Um, resonates with this older idea of spirits traveling in straight lines. But even if we have to completely abandon the idea of something like orthotony, it still has such a lasting legacy to this day. Um, you know, it's it's not only the reason that Jacques Vallée decided to embark on looking at older folklore, because Vallée was a big fan of orthotony, and in his diaries he said, well, that idea doesn't seem like it holds any water, so I'm going to focus on folklore. So that's an enduring legacy. But also, 
John Keel's window area idea um, was directly born out of his interest in orthotomy and looking at these ancient sites and the ancient sites he felt uh, that had so much paranormal activity and UFO activity. Often these these window areas would be centered around a, a, a famous archaeological site. And, you know, to this day, you still see this Machu Picchu, the pyramids, you know, a lot of the mounds in North America. These are all hot spots um, for paranormal activity. Yeah, absolutely. What came to mind when you mentioned the subcarios, or however that word is pronounced, is the intaglios. The there's the Blythe intaglios in California, and then there's the more famous intaglios known as the Nazca lines. And what I've read from Paul Devereaux is that one theory that exists is that shamans use these lines to get into the state of mind of whatever animal or figure that that line fit pattern is representing you know if they're you know following the the bird line then they're imagining themselves transforming into a bird and you mentioned this in in your book with the chapter or or part of a chapter called Shamanimals, which I think is a beautiful, uh, <laughs> that's a, what do you call it when you put two words together? I love that. Yeah, the portmanteau. Yeah, that's a great yeah. portmanteau, Shamanimals. It's, it's what I, when I was a kid, there's that show Animorphs, and mm -hmm. that in my mind as a kid was so real to me, like the ability for you to imagine that you're an animal and then become that animal. I don't know if I carried that over from a past life or something, but I believed that when I was a kid and that TV show, you know, just furthered my belief. And now I see here, Shamanimals, this is kind of... Uh, well, or it's well known now because of the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. I think a lot of mm. people probably are familiar with the idea of a shapeshifter or or this kind of lore around the shapeshifter, but it's not necessarily an evil thing. It's not necessarily only the Skinwalker. This idea of a shaman transforming into an animal, you know, it's universal. It's it right. goes beyond that one area where the Skinwalker is talked about. Yeah, and and just like. Look, I love these communities, right? Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this, but like so many people just get really dopey with the way that they want these things to to be like. And what I mean by that is they want to see, you know, a skinwalker, you know, transform into a, like a, a wolf man. I'm like, that's not I don't think that's what is being described here. It's like the dog man people who are like, you know, I think a human had sex with a dog and they gave birth to a dog baby and i'm like that's not the way that works and it's not the way this stuff seems to work either um it's very much tied into into soul craft from what i can tell and the idea that uh shamanic practitioners again a very broad term but we're just going to use that term shamanic practitioners have such an awareness of of the placement and the separability of their soul that they can allow it to sort of go off and do its own thing and those things that it might do um, are just, you know, side effects that we would recognize today um, or just out-of-body experiences that we would recognize today. But, you know, you find references time and again to these shamanic practitioners who are in their sort of out-of-body state and to third-party observers, they look like, you know, ghost lights bouncing along. But that wandering soul idea is something that it seems that we're all completely capable of doing. You know, the idea was that if you were in a trance or in any sort of altered state of consciousness, including sleep, that your soul would wander and go off and do whatever the heck it wants. 
witches' sabbaths, the wild hunt, but also um, that it might correspond to uh, a zoomorphic counterpart, that it might correspond to an animal. You know, this was where, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are some older uh, werewolf legends where it was a physical transformation, but if you look at a lot of them, um, it does appear that it's more of an astral uh, inhabitation of an actual wolf, you know, someone's spirit going into a wolf or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and I think that's probably in my estimation, that's what the shapeshifter mythos that we see around the world is, is referring to more often than it is actually the full bodied transformation. And you see this among the Nias of, uh, no, I believe it's Myanmar now, um, is where they live and they're famous headhunters, but they believe that they had, you know, certain headhunters would believe that they had a corresponding, uh, you know, panther, corresponding leopard rather in the jungle, um, that they sort of shared existence with and wounds on the leopard would be reflected on them and, and vice versa, which of course brings up, you know, wounds and alien abductions and stigmata and all sorts of other uh, injuries that are inflicted upon people in this sort of astral state being reflected on their own physical bodies. But I think that's probably what a lot of this, uh, the shape-shifting lore is probably getting at is just the fact that people who foster an awareness of what their soul is um, can command it to do things that we can only do by by happenstance. Right, right. And there are a lot of uh, what have been deemed by academia, anthropology specifically as, you know, primitive, right? These um self-mutilation type acts one story that i actually heard firsthand from someone who had gone through this ritual is the eagle bone sun ceremony that goes on in certain tribes in the southwest and the uh, plains cultures in north america where a young man 19 20 25 in between that age is left in a very very strenuous position with an eagle bone piercing their skin on their chest tied to rope or leather that's attached to a pole and they're suspended from this pole by their wound uh, for a number of you know hours or days until the eagle bone is released right it, it naturally <laughs> will break at some point and then that Either that or somebody comes and removes it. But either way, you're sort of left there to make it back to civilization or to your village, you know. And, I mean, just the way you groan there as I'm describing it, I too groaned when I was first told of this experience. And I think there is a certain effect that we've lost in our modern culture of the rite of passage. I think, you know, it's been brutalized with this whole you know draft and go to war i mean that's sort of an extreme version of it what it could have been in the past but i wonder if you can speak to that aspect of shamanism and its ability to push us to these you know near-death experiences and and maybe that has something to you know uh teach us yeah i i i've spoken about this here and there but a lot of rites of passage do sort of resemble that shamanic initiation. It's the idea that, well, you know, broadly speaking with the rites of passage thing, it's this idea that uh, your old self dies, right? And then now you're, you know, from a boy to a man or from a, a girl to a woman, 
And yeah, we just don't have that. And the things that we come up with, um, look, I'm not saying that we should like pierce people with, with eagle bones or, or that we should like stick your hands in a glove full of bullet ants, like some cultures do. Right. I'm not saying we should do that, but, um, the things that we do come up with to fill that void are if, if we actually do them, because a lot of people just don't, they're not exactly healthy, you know? Um, and, uh, it's it's more extreme in, in the shamanic initiation stuff because the the goal of of every shamanic initiation, whether it's brought on by substances or it's brought on by the spirit world inflicting a child with an illness, or whether it's actually you know someone who is selected by the spirit world and is buried alive or undergoes intense torture or pain, they all point to crossing that threshold or getting as close as you can to that threshold of death and then coming back. And when you come back from that, you have, um, you have abilities, right? And I'll be damned. Guess what happens? You know, people go to fairyland, they come back, they have abilities. Right. Jeffrey's a famous, famous Cornish example. Near death experiencers come back, they have abilities. You know, they have clairvoyance, they have, you know, RSPK, they have poltergeist phenomena around them. Um, you know, I'll be damned. People who have alien abductions have a significant ramp up in poltergeist activity in their homes. But these are all different things, right? They're completely different different things. And it's like, well, it kind of looks like the same thing. You're going to some place, something is drawing you there, or you're you know, you're going there and you're coming back and you come back with abilities. And if you look at sort of the, the classical tradition, you know, the Greco-Roman tradition, um, a lot of the seers, people who would just be born with these abilities, the claim was that they had been offered the drink of forgetfulness when they were being reincarnated so that they wouldn't remember their old lives. And the seers were the ones who, in the afterlife, declined to either pass over the plains of forgetfulness or declined to drink the, the brew of forgetfulness. And that's why they were able to retain all this knowledge and come back with these abilities. So it starts to look really hyper consistent to me. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the shamanic tradition specifically, you have a lot of different mechanisms, but oftentimes they do focus around intense uh, physical stress. Uh, in some certain traditions in Africa, this is uh, a ritualized dance where you literally dance to the point of exhaustion. Um, in other cultures in Africa as well, I'm thinking of specifically, you might be buried up to your neck in the hot sweltering sun and forced to basically the shamanic thing kind of just forces you to have a near-death experience in a lot of ways just as far as we can and then bring you um and uh yeah it's just it's 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 a it's a fascinating correlation to me um about just in regarding that amount of consistency that you see and i think that uh you know i think sometimes the, the psychedelic experience might be something like that as well um because some people do come back and say that they have abilities. Um, a really interesting study by David Luke and Mario Kittenis, um, uh, I think it was just a couple of years ago, showed that uh, heavy users of psychedelics report all these things that we've been talking about, telepathy, clairvoyance, et cetera, um, but that the incidents actually increased when they were on the match, you know, when they were, when they were just like not, when they were not under the influence, that's when they experienced most of this stuff, which is runs completely contrary to what we would expect. You know, it's very similar to those brain uh, imaging studies where 
people took psilocybin and their brain activity decreased. You know, it's not what anybody expected, but that's what it seems to be. So there does seem to be some sort of indication that we put up a filter that sort of gets removed by by these threshold experiences. Right. And and this is something you go over early on in the first volume, which is, you know, our mind is not our brain. Our brain, you know, is is seems to be a receiver rather than uh, the origin point. And I couldn't agree more. I think the Egyptians were onto this. This is why they, you know, talked about our mind being in our heart rather than in our head. And maybe they identified more with that spirit or soul feeling. But there is a distinction, and you do get into that distinction between the spirit and the soul. Um, but before we leave shamanism, I want to ask you a question. Do you think the new age, right? Because you mentioned how the new age is, has this sort of misguided disregard, is sort of even, um, you know, sort of distasteful in, in some sense for this intentional syncretism, right? And I'm wondering if you think that that's, you know, possibly uh, propagandized to a certain extent? Because, I mean, you know, Carlos Castaneda, he was out of the University of California. They they have a, quite a reputation over there, and a lot of the, the New Age authors tend to be propped up by these same sort of uh, groups. So I'm wondering, do you think that was like an intentional sort of thing to, to keep us from understanding these profound truths maybe to further obscure uh, and not bring clarity to it because it, it it makes people you know believe this sort of pop shamanism is what we're talking about when we're talking about ancient cultures and i mean pop shamanism that's just what yeah. they do at like music festivals is there's no you know reality to right. it <laughs> yeah i mean i i, I think all these topics, because they are so marginal, have have been explored time and again. I mean, this is what I get upset at the modern disclosure crowd for not realizing. You know, they're like, you know, Daddy, please give me more candy. <laughs> you know, it's just like this is not going to go the way that you think it has if you have any perspective on history. And I think that the New Age movement obviously has the earmarks of all that. Um, well, at the same time, presenting truths. I mean, anytime you get something. Uh, anytime authority structures get involved in these communities, there's going to be truths and lies put together side by side so that you can't really tell the difference and, and whatnot. Um, I can easily how um, an authority apparatus would weaponize some of the new age movement to, you know, as almost a pacification project um, as almost a way to encourage people to, I mean, because this is not this is not a slag on the, the the psychedelic community or the stoner community but like there is a portion of people who just like sort of fall off fall off the path when they get involved and they just burn out you know so i can see that being another possible motivation for 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 sort of weaponizing a lot of these messages um so yeah i think it's an entirely possible perhaps even likely um at the same time you know i i get I have to be uh, charitable to a lot of the new age community. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I feel about the new age community, the way that I feel about uh, the evangelicals who talk about UFOs. You know what I mean? Cause the evangelicals talk about UFOs and they're like, okay, well they're just angels and demons. And I'm like, well, I don't, you know, even though I'm a practicing Christian, I get what you're trying to say, but I just don't think that that's, 
enough of the nuanced approach. You know, I think that there's a lot of room between uh, angels. I think that the ecology of souls has a lot of room between things that are purely negative and purely positive that are just sort of free agents. You know, it's a shark doesn't care about you. Tornado doesn't care about you. It's not evil, <laughs> but it will definitely, you know, fuck you up. Um, so, but at the same time, like I see that that sort of, you know, angels are demons attitude. And I'm like, I do resonate with that because I think it's again, for me, your mileage may vary. I think it's closer to what lies behind the UFO phenomenon than little green scientists coming from another planet and nuts mm-hmm. and bolts spacecraft, you know? So like, I, I kind of feel the same way about the new age movement. I feel like that they have a closer grasp on reality than a lot of, um, than a lot of reductionist materialists, but at the same time, it's just like too much of a good thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I did, I did find something really fascinating that made me rethink the high, um, the high, low vibration thing. Uh, it's a little bit of a digression, but I'll, I'll try to get into it in and out of it really quickly. Um, so a lot of people have tried to tie sleep paralysis to alien abduction, and there does seem to be some sort of um, connection there. Uh, but I would be hard pressed to, uh, I would be hard pressed to not pre- pre- present a really compelling argument that a lot of these alien abductions seem to be basically somehow astral, out of body experiences. And there are some caveats. There are plenty of caveats. There are plenty of things that I go into in the book that refute that. But just generally speaking, they do seem to have that sort of out-of-body component to them. But tying alien abductions to sleep paralysis sort of ignores the fact that sleep paralysis is a very embodied sort of thing. Like you feel you're in your body, you feel you're you're being pressed down. Like it doesn't have that sort of like being lifted out of your body or lifted upwards through the ceiling of your house uh, feeling that a lot of alien abductions have. But what I thought is that maybe, uh, you know, maybe that's the return trip. Like maybe when you go to sleep, you we all go out of body all the time. We don't even realize it. And when we return, because these sleep paralysis experiences are often hypnogogic, it's when you're waking from sleep, then sometimes your car breaks down. You know what I mean? (laughs) It breaks down in a real bad neighborhood because these things that appear in sleep paralysis are never positive. But here's the interesting researcher. I can't recall. People were sleeping in high voltage, high amplitude, rather. Um, Electricity was applied to the brain would induce autoscopy, would induce that out-of-body experience. But if low amplitude voltage was applied to the brain, it would induce the sleep paralysis experience. And that's what made me say, okay, wait a minute. So you're saying high vibrations induce out-of-body experiences and low vibrations introduce induce rather sleep paralysis which has these negative identities and how does the new age speak about these things you know oh this entity is on a higher vibration you need to raise your vibration no it's a low vibration entity you need to you've got a low vibration it's negative i'm like that actually lines up really well you know um taking a look at the sort of things that you encounter in sleep paralysis and not so it's things like that where you know i think that the new age movement is keyed into a little bit better but i think that I mean, you know, in in in, the, in a perfect world, we'd have we'd have people who are um, small s skeptics combined with a lot of these other people who are into these topics and who are, you know, advocating for caution of claims simply because they don't want their hearts broken, right? Like that's me. Like I'm not a skeptic, but I always try to take a skeptical approach when I'm out in the field or something because I don't want my heart broken. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that. There's some truth there, but 
looking at and sorting it all has become so difficult because just like with anything else, there are a lot of ninnies, a lot of crazy people in there. Indeed. Yes, that is the, that is. Something. I mean, I mean, I mean, and we all live in glass houses, right? Like right. somebody, somebody tuning in at random to this show is like, these people are crazy. And I realize that as well. Oh. That. Well, this is a perfect name for a show for crazy people to talk but that's true uh, that's true <laughs> yeah i i take it well i think i take it in stride at this point but you know when it comes to what i've seen in my local area i mean when i told you i dropped out of college i was dropping out of college because at that point in time i preferred hanging out on this park bench on the new haven green over going to class and why? Because I was learning so much there. Uh, I was meeting people of all different types from, you know, the upper echelon of Yale students to the lowest rungs of, you know, the impoverished class of New Haven and everyone in between. And then as I'm learning more about the local area, I find out that that whole spot that I was sitting at, the exact part of the park where I was sitting is a grave. Uh, it was the ancient burying ground of the town of New Haven when they were first established there as a colony. And one of the interesting portions of our conversation that I'm going to circle back to is what we talked about. Well, it's all been interesting, but for me, when you said boats and how boats are a very rich, inanimate symbol, uh, New Haven the town, the colony, had a sighting in 1664. I think it was one of the first um, UFO sightings in the American colonies, if we can call it a UFO. But what they saw was a phantom ship, which appeared in the clouds over the harbor and reminded them that they probably lost their ship that they that had departed a few months earlier it was sort of like a harbinger of doom and mm -hmm. of course you know months later they found out that that ship never made it to its destination and it's really strange considering everything that's gone on in new haven and connecticut since we kind of have a reputation for being a haunted state over here and uh our first sort of major ghost encounter was a haunted ship <laughs> i wonder yeah. if that bears a sort of, uh, you know, uh, icon for what's to come. Oh, I mean, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, you said if you can call it a UFO and I'm like, of course you can, it's unidentified, it's flying and it's an object, you know, it's, um, I mean, that's, that's very passport to Magonia, right? Like the idea that you'd actually see ships in the sky that might like literally drop anchor to the earth. Um, but again, speaks to the way that it's another, I, I feel like it's another nail in the extraterrestrial hypothesis coffin. Um, these things are not consistent, you know, in, in terms of the way that they appear. Um, it was a very sort of Jacques Vallée idea, but, you know, you did have like ships in the sky and then, you know, looking to a more modern era, um, you would have these steampunk airships, you know, around the great airship wave in, in the early 1900s. And then in the fifties, we got art deco flying saucers. And in the eighties, we got black triangles that, you know, sort of looked a lot like terrestrial technology and now it's these you know fucking tic tacs and like plasma balls it always just sort of stays a couple of steps ahead yeah. of what we are and I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that you know if we were i'm not saying that an extraterrestrial civilization wouldn't improve its technology over the past 150 years or something like that i'm not saying that but 
they're such stark departures and they always seem just a little bit more accomplished than we are. You know what I mean? Just like, man, we, we can just get there. You know I mean? Like the fact that the Tic Tac has taken off in the era of the drones, I mean, it looks a lot like a, a really high tech drone. I'm not saying it is a high tech drone. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying, but the fact that it sort of bears a resemblance to, Again, just being a little bit ahead of us, I well, think, is really interesting. I think that speaks to the co-creative aspect of what we're talking about 100%. here. hundred percent. Yeah, and how like something that's been digested is not co-created in the next rendering, so to speak, right? As a, the energy is rendering, if it's already been processed by the human mind collective to a you know certain percentage, well, it's time for a new rendering, and it appears I in a different way. Totally agree, and and. As 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 way of illustration uh, and regarding uh, related phenomenon, there's a great uh, bit of scholarship that's out there that everybody can look it up online. Uh, it's Simon Young's Fairy Census, and I believe it goes through 27. And Simon Young is a is a scholar uh, who is fascinated in fairy stories and just fairy history and all these things. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things that you notice about reading the uh, the fairy census is that a lot of these encounters sound like Disney. You know, people will have people will see fairies that correspond to folklore fairies, right? They'll see fairies that look like human sized but are just sort of mystical, or they'll have fairies that are short but don't have wings uh, because the wings thing was an artistic flourish. Like we can say that with a great degree of certainty. It wasn't until Shakespeare and some children's books and stuff that fairies got their wings, but people see fairies with wings today, which certainly speaks to that co-creative aspect. But the interesting thing, and I can't say this for certain, it's just a rumor right now. And I haven't spoken to Simon, even though I'm relatively close with him. Um, I haven't spoken with him about this specifically, but he's compiled a new census from 2017 to 2022. And I have heard second, third hand from people who have spoken to him about this, that, the fairies are starting to lose their wings. And I find that fascinating when you put it, uh, when you, when you put it up against this resurgence in paganism and this resurgence in the magical, magical, magical Renaissance that we're living through the idea that people would become more familiar with what fairies actually were and start to see them that way, I think speaks to there being a co-creative uh, component at work. I really do. Mm. Um, it also reminds me of a story about my uh, editor on Ecology of Souls, Barbara Fisher. She runs the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast, and she's a lovely lady. Um, I'm going to be working with her stuff in the future, but she's also a, a quite uh, amazing experiencer. And lived in a home in Ohio, uh, and she would see ghost lights out back and would always just assume that they were the fairies, the faithful. And she, at the time, had uh you know a, a metaphysical bookshop or like a magical supply shop in town and she had given a sort of a little seminar workshop on fairies and the first thing she said was fairies don't look like small women with wings they just don't look like small women with wings the actual fairies are blah 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 the stuff that i've just told you right and on fourth july that that following year um or that following, you know, the following 4th of July, uh, a bunch of people were out front. She didn't really care about fireworks. So she was back with a friend and the ghost lights appear. You know, people might say, oh, it's 4th of July. How do you know there were ghost lights? Well, she saw and continues to see ghost lights on the property. It's not, that's, that's a non-starter for the discussion. But she and the friend were 
out back and they were singing. And as they were singing, they noticed that, you know, a couple of lights were approaching closer and closer. And sure enough, one got within just feet of her. And uh, basically, long story short, um, the light, if I recall correctly, it popped and then it reformed. And inside the bubble was a little woman with wings. And she got a voice in her head that said, we can look however we damn well, please. <laughs> and it was, you know, so that's a really interesting uh, sort of co-creation anecdotal story that suggests that we might be looking at something like that with these these phenomena broadly because i do think a lot of these things are connected and i think that you can extend some of that uh, co-creative idea to some cryptid encounters as well mm, yeah it's fascinating too when you realize that fairies are certainly not limited to europe by any means there's stories of little people all over uh north america here in connecticut there's the mohegan tribe who claims that there's the i always forget their name it's like it's not Pukwaji. it's like something um, similar muckwitch maybe or, yeah no no i think muckwitch might be a people the, it starts Mims, with an m aguesi it starts with an m aguesi yeah i think maybe. you might be yeah. onto it because it starts or, with an m but but they live in this underground location in a sort of eastern part of connecticut and H.P. Lovecraft famously spent some time in Connecticut at a different site, Makamudis State Park, where mm -hmm. uh, the Makamudis noises, noises, yep. noises are heard. And, you know, this sort of lore around this area is that there's an underworld god that rumbles every now and then, and, and the Native Americans would do some sort of sacrifice to appease him we're told or at least that's what the colonists observed who knows if they were you know not you know they, they tended to bias everything when they observed yeah. anything hence the names devil's den devil's field devil's hot right. yard and all the other devil uh toponyms <laughs> yeah that's I, I i'm trying to remember which story that inspired because he he used it as the basis for one of the I stories think it, yeah it one. was something noises he took i it was uh the haunt yeah i don't know i i could look it up really quickly but uh yeah the um the moodist noises are definitely strange there there seems to be again like many elements that comprise these zones because the moodist noises are on uh a state don't much horror what's don't that much horror okay the the horror. Horror. Yeah. cool cool yeah so um, that's on the Connecticut River there, which is a very large river uh, in terms of New England rivers. And also uh, the Gillette or the, the Gillette Castle is not too far from there. And the Gillette Castle was built by the man who played Sherlock Holmes famously. Uh, and it houses a rare collection of tarot cards that are from the 19th century. So there's sort of a... A magic atmosphere in that yeah. area whether intentional or not it's sort of to your point you know this energy like requires these types of things to be built there it's almost like our mm -hmm. instincts propel us to fill that void appropriate to the the like energetic blueprint you know well you know i mean i didn't realize until i visited coral castle that like mm -hmm. It's right there in skunk ape territory. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, <laughs> right. well, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. The, the Florida, I mean, don't get me started on Florida. I just spoke to a guy who runs a YouTube channel called Old World Florida. And uh, 
there's a lot of interesting claims being made in that old world realm these days, but he uh, has his sights on the right uh, target, in my opinion, and he's kind of showing some correlations between what we are told is the mythological Fertile Crescent and the Gulf of Mexico, claiming that maybe the Gulf of Mexico would have been this Fertile Crescent, and he's found uh, these stone anchors that show that there was clearly uh, very large <laughs> colonies of people using very large ships, much older than we're told. So, yeah, this this history of of America is very strange. Um, any comments it is, it on is. that? I, I- I haven't I haven't seen the uh, the new Graham Hancock show. I don't know how his thinking has evolved on Atlantis and where it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that for a while there was the Bimini Road, which would kind of be vaguely in the right part of the world. Well, and, but and, I think that it, I think that the Bimini Road is not as favorably looked upon by Atlantis theorists now. But maybe maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, John Michelle's uh, new view over Atlantis kind of, I think, inspired a lot of people to look at America as possibly, you know, the site of Atlantis. And I don't know if I'm fully swayed by that, but it it is interesting to see the connections between, you know, structures here and the old world and then see the corresponding uh, lore associated like you see the little people in the ferry the fey folk in mm-hmm. these same areas in uh, america associated with cairns and standing stones and whatnot well that's something that really fascinated me and you know i'd never gotten the chance to write about ancient before really so i just always wanted to to do that but having been to ireland um and like <laughs> made a stop at every ferry fort i could correctly identify and having been to as many mound sites here in the u.s like i know there has got to be there has got to be somewhere 200 dollars reward for anybody who can find this right and I, I mean that like <laughs> there's got to be an illusion in some old irishman's diary about them like stumbling across some of the mounds and then being like oh they have the fairies here too because like these things look so similar i have a presentation where i show uh an Irish fairy fort in like County Clare or something. And I have a, I have a picture of that. And I have a picture beside it of the Etowah mounds here in Georgia, pre excavation when they're still covered with trees. And I say, okay, who can tell me which is the fairy fort? And it's always split 50, 50 because they just look so similar. And there's so many similarities in construction. Um, There are even some, some mounds that tragically have been since demolished, but there are even some mounds um, that were once in Greenup, Kentucky. Um, that have what you would call a hingeform construction, which is very similar to the uh, Irish forts where you have a large moat on the outside that has its own implications for, you know, um, spirit conjuration as well. But I think I find it just fascinating that you have these new world um, mounds looking a lot like some of these old world forts, um, you know, and I, I'm willing to, in, to entertain the idea that there was some degree of cross pollination, but uh, kind of like we were talking about earlier with, you know, um, cultural contamination among the Cherokee little people myths. I find it really interesting or I find it as compelling that, no, there wasn't any cultural transmissions in the, in the creation of these structures. The creation of these structures looks so similar because, damn it, this is just the best way to contact these things. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the bow and arrow. Like no one really says that, like, 
the bow and arrow was was imported from elsewhere into the new world it's just like well this this obviously just works like if if you're playing with this stuff long enough you figure out a bow and arrow right and i would argue and i would suspect i kind of think it would be cool that if cultures just play with the spirit world long enough they figure out some of these shapes and some of these designs just draw this stuff in better which would be another way to explain why we have so many pyramids everywhere it's just like no it's just it's just why it looks that way but again pyramids you know sort of being a a variation on the mountain idea just like the 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 mounds and the tumuli are as well like it's a it's a mountain that brings you closer to the axis mundi uh the omphalos connecting the upper and lower worlds right that's a lot right. of academic words <laughs> no i i'm with you and and they have a very similar uh m- myth lore about this wall of the manitou here in uh, upstate new york and new england the hamanasset line that glenn kreisberg writes about in his book spirit in stone it comprises of cairns standing stones all across the landscape in an exact straight line that crosses from the point of long island sound through connecticut through the Catskill Mountains and then up to the Great Lakes region. And um, this wall of the Manitou and the Catskills was one of those Axis Mundi points where Native American tribes would go in a sort of rite of passage. They'd climb to the top, and there was even a sort of challenge like, you know, there's 12 peaks. Whoever gets to the, you know, past the ninth peak, you know, that's a real man or that's a, you know, medicine, you know, so there's this whole uh dichotomy or hierarchy of of different spots you you'd go mm-hmm. to depending on your personal archetype or your trajectory right. and it's fascinating to see that line you know them all lining up and it it lines up with the equinox go figure all of these yeah, have always. astro <laughs> astronomical yeah. alignments and and that just speaks to the the gateway of the soul concept this idea that your soul would use these lines to travel to the axis mundi and then you know follow that into the other world after you passed yeah and and the thing about those those astronomical alignments is you know that's where the ancient alien impulse comes in it's Mm. like they were trying to align to make sure that the (laughs) ufos could find a way to land and it's like but yeah but these people thought of the, the the overworld as i like to call it like they thought of that as like another other world you know and right. uh you know a, a stellar sea in a lot of ways and this was the vector point for spirit communication and you know the night the night sky below the ecliptic was was the underworld and you find in a lot of native american cosmologies that like this is a really counterintuitive idea for us but you had to ascend to the path of the milky way to actually reach the underworld to reach the afterlife and there was an og at the center of the universe sort of you know people again the science nerds are like maybe they were describing a black hole and i'm like look it's just <laughs> you know it's like don't mix your science and your mysticism because you wind up with bad science and bad mysticism like we, we had we had a perfectly fine vocabulary for a lot of this stuff for centuries. And uh, like, why, why are we throwing that out to talk about dimensions and stuff? Like it just, that's why I continue to just say other world, you know, and to just, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, uh, to your point, like I hear stories and examples like that. And I'm like, man, I wish I'd included that. Number one, the book's long enough as it is, but number two, 
you know, when you're writing a book that involves so many universal ideas, you get to a certain critical mass and you're like, I just don't need to list all these because like you will, if you learn about this, if you learn about the fact that mountains were the site of revelation for ancient cultures and you just hold that idea in your head, you're going to see it in your daily life. You're going to see it on the history channel. You're going to see it in movies. You're going to see it in books when people don't even think about that. Like it's just, it's just, it's so ingrained into us that idea of ascending to the top of a mountain uh, for spiritual revelation to be, to, to contact the divine, to meet a monster or anything like that. It's just baked into everything that we, it's baked into all of our media. It's baked into all of our ideas. Like it's just, you can't escape it. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating too, especially when we focus on the mounds here in new England, there aren't, uh, as many mounds were told, maybe there were in the past, maybe there are that have just never been, you know, fully recognized. I've seen one or two that I can tell from my own, you know, understanding that are mounds. But you made a point in Ecology of Souls to to make the comparison between Wilhelm Reich's orgone generator and the construction of mounds. And this is really fascinating because one aspect of mounds that isn't really talked about is the middens. The middens are a type of mound that were built primarily in places where they had less soil to work with and mostly seashells, right? And you know from your book you wrote that seashells were found even as far in as like Kentucky. They had seashells in their mounds, so seashells were very important, but they have these middens that archaeologists and anthropologists call trash piles and we don't think they're trash (laughs) piles right and you know limestone as we talked about before is basically that exact material Mm -hmm. you know just pushed and squeezed and forced into stone over many many years and all these pressures in the earth so seems like there's a through line here right limestone the seashells And then we have this orgone component where Wilhelm Reich found, you know, a certain combination of materials built in a certain box. When you sat inside Mm -hmm. of it, you would have a, you know, uh, healing effect, an energy effect. And maybe that's what these mounds are doing in a sort of inverted way. You don't have to go inside of them. You just stand on top of them. Yeah. And it was one of those things when working on this where it's like you start to see an idea and you're like, okay. Well, if this line of speculation holds true, I should be able to find this elsewhere. And, you know, you find that sort of layers of alternating organic and inorganic strata in in the mounds. Um, you find it in places like Silbury Hill in uh, in England. And uh, I was like, okay, so that's that's two different places that we're associating with strange phenomena. Like, is there going to be a third and I'll be damned. Um, a lot of ring forts would have alternating um, stacks of, you know, stone and uh, humus, you know, which is highly organic dirt as well. So it's like, okay, well, it looks like there's something to it. This idea that you can sort of harness or generate or amplify orgone energy through this alternating strata is something that I suspect might have something to do with the incidence of of supernatural quote-unquote phenomena around these sites yeah it's 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 really is fascinating and you know it's interesting you mentioned the seashells in kentucky and you know how did they get there where did it come from it really puts one in the same mindset as a lot of these megaliths in 
in Ireland and the British Isles where they find out that like, oh, the quarry was like 300 miles away. You know, it's right. like, how, okay, well, how do they, why, why did they need it from there? You know, and it's, right. it's very similar in a lot of respects, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that comes to mind on the topic of mounds is I don't remember exactly who brought this up, but somebody I was talking to or someone I listened to on a show mentioned that when a body is buried in the earth without a casket, without, you know, this sort of barrier between you and the, the soil, your body is sort of disintegrated over time. And there's actually a percentage of genetic material that can be found in the soil where people are buried. So to a certain extent, a mound, if it was a burial mound, has the DNA of our ancestors inside of it, right? So there's a certain, you know, I mean, from the reductive materialist standpoint, they can at least recognize like, oh, okay, like there's light codes emanating mm -hmm. from this soil somehow. But on the more metaphysical perspective, like it just speaks to the idea that we go to these places as a gateway or a you know uh liminal space between here and whatever's beyond well and and that's something that i find really interesting too is this idea that um you know the word human comes from i, I alluded to humus earlier like it's, mm. it's 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 all bound up in this idea of dirt and you know obviously that's a quasi-biblical perspective ashes to ashes and dust to dust but there is this idea of of grounding and being um just more connected to the earth and more connected to to the soil and more connected to this original environment that we were all intended for. And, and, you know, it's, so it's unsurprising when you see stuff like, you know, scientists say that spending 10 days, uh, sorry, 10, 10 minutes a day and in, in the grass and your bare feet is good for you. Good for your attitude. I'm like, yeah, no shit. So like, <laughs> right. It's, it's where we, it's where we are and come from, you know? Right. Right. Well said, man. And this has been such a good, dive into so many topics that I really do love. And, and as much as I wanted to have a full-blown Bigfoot conversation, I think the <laughs> Ecology of Souls book is, it hits me at just the right time. Uh, and I look forward to including you on a project that I'm working on involving New Haven, if you'd oblige, uh, for another interview in the future. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, Josh, it looks like we're coming up on our time limit here. Where can folks go to get the book? Is there a website that you personally host that is the best place to buy it? Or do you not mind that people go to Amazon? What, how, how should well, people pick up the book? So, so this requires a little bit of explanation. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did self-publish this time. Um, and I hate to admit it, but Amazon's self-publishing platform in terms of quality and ease of use and, uh, and just the ability to, to bind big books um, is, is really quite good. So if you want to go to Amazon, uh, that's the only online retailer where it is available. However, um, if you write me directly at my website, there's a contact form there. Um, I not only offer signed copies, but I offer them uh, for less if you actually buy multiple copies. So you can save about 20 or I think 20 or $30, depending on ex exactly what you buy, if you buy the set. Uh, of course, you know, this applies to the lower 48, it gets a little bit, it gets a little bit difficult with, uh, international and Alaska and Hawaiian, et cetera. But, um, so yeah, either through Amazon or directly from myself, uh, 
And my website is Joshua Cutchin, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N. Um, if you the the most affordable option is to pick up the Kindle. The Kindle includes volumes one and two, and all the endnotes. Um, if you pick up the physical copies, it's volume one separately, volume two, and then the endnotes and appendices and bibliography are also <laughs> separate. Um, you can pick up a copy of those in physical form if you are a print media aficionado like I am. Or I've also made that same volume available on my website. So you don't have to pick up the, the Ecology of Souls Companion. If you get volumes one and two, you can just go to my website as well. Wonderful. A little bit of a mouthful there. A little bit confusing. But no, no, not confusing at all. I appreciate the explanation. I do like to ask because I think there there are plenty of people in the audience who prefer to uh, to go the more personal route and pay you directly and get your signature. Although, uh, well, let's not flood Josh's inbox, folks, because he <laughs> does have uh, young kids and a family and a life to live. So uh, go to Amazon, support this man, and go to his website and see what's coming next. I'm sure there's a place where he uh, posts maybe relevant research and all sorts of things like that. I recently heard him on Chris Knowles' Secret Son uh, Mystery Hour, so you can hear him there. And just search Josh's name. He's, he's all over the place. He's been on a bunch of podcast but uh thank you brother i appreciate your time and until next time ladies and gentlemen enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now all right and that is our conversation with joshua cutchin so about time i had him on i'm really glad that we made it happen I had him booked on Tinfoil Hat a while ago, so I've communicated with him before, and I really, really liked how he contributed to the Penny Royal series podcast, so um, many different reasons to have him on the show, and great timing too, considering he just came out with this amazing new book, Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, Volumes 1 and 2, and I spent a good deal of time reading from volume one, which is why we spent a lot of time talking about fairies and the folklore aspect to his book rather than uh, the UFO angle, which is the majority of volume two. So I figured I would go into volume two and give you guys a few quotes just to have something to chew on, maybe to incentivize you to support joshua cutchin and pick up his book leave him a review and when you do make sure you let him know you heard him on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast that always helps especially with a uh, big guest like joshua cutchin you know he he's the type of guest that goes on a lot of different shows and you know he could say no if he wanted to he, he'll have no shortage of other people asking him onto a podcast. So it's always a real uh, treat to have someone like him on. And uh, I like to show as much support as I can in return. And since you folks are the lifeblood of this podcast, I hope you do the same. Now, his books are really great for their bibliography. As I told him in the interview, he takes a lot of source material uh, from other researchers as well 
uh, specifically some heavyweights like John Keel and Jock Vallee, two people who have inspired many to get into this research. And on page 506 of his 1,405-page book, he writes, well, he quotes Keel, who says, Illusions, illusion-prone spirits are responsible for nearly nearly all of the UFO appearances and manipulations. The flying saucers do not come from some Buck Rogers-type civilization on some distant planet. They are our next-door neighbors, part of another space-time continuum where life, matter, and energy are radically different from ours. Ancient man knew this and recognized it. Very interesting thoughts from John Keel, someone who studied ufos and ultimately decided that there is something psychic going on with these ufo encounters something that had to do maybe more with the witnesses than the actual ufos themselves uh, then on the same uh, part of the book same page so to speak although this is an ebook so i don't know if i'm looking at one page or two but we have Jacques Vallée quoted in a conversation with a psychologist named Jeffrey Mishlove. And Jacques Vallée, Jacques Vallée says, I am going to be very disappointed if UFOs turn out to be nothing more than visitors from another planet. Because I think they can be something more interesting. I think what the UFO phenomena is teaching us is that we don't understand time and space. Here are objects that are physical, that interact with our environment, that cause effects on the witnesses, on the psychology and physiology of the witness, that leave traces on the ground and yet appear to be capable of being able to manipulate time and space in ways that go beyond what our physics understand today. And that's very interesting. And I wonder, you know, is, is it that these things defy physics or is it that our understanding of physics defies actuality right i mean that's always been a big thought of mine when you look at ufo phenomena is well clearly we're wrong about our physical universe if these crafts are operating in such a way that defies our physical laws uh, so to speak right but uh, i mean this really I think just points to the fact that we human beings don't fully understand what we're in. And Ecology of Souls is a great book to help you structure, uh, I don't know, get a grasp, get a grip, because Josh doesn't keep a singular perspective in this book. He draws comparisons throughout many different cultures on all seven continents from all time periods and i guess the the unifying factor is they all involve human beings strange encounters that human beings have with the other whether that's beings from the afterlife beings from another world beings from another reality or you know another planet although that's not really what I tend to go with, I think it's kind of interesting how we've shifted away from that, at least 
in my short life, I've noticed my feelings and thoughts change. And I'm really starting to fall into the camp of, uh, you know, ETs are actually more like UTs, ultra terrestrials. There's something above us or outside of what we would consider normal reality. I don't, above implies you know, a hierarchy of value, which I don't think we necessarily need. So I'll just say they exist outside of what we would consider ordinary reality. They may be able to alter reality and open up access to a non-ordinary reality, temporarily disorientating whoever is experiencing or encountering this Fordian phenomena. So just some ideas to chew on as we wrap this episode up, bringing it to a close. I'm over here in snowy New England. We finally got our first snowfall down here. Just rolling up an, a blunt, finishing up this lovely episode with Joshua Cutchin. I look forward to having him back on maybe to talk more about volume two that does get into the alien stuff. Uh, I was supposed to have a guest on who was going to represent a recently deceased author. They were the editor or co-author of a book and their co-author passed away and I was going to have them on instead of him. And it fell through. So it looks like we won't be talking about gray aliens, but I do recommend people go and look at recently deceased Neil Kramer's book as well. It's called Gray Aliens and Artificial Intelligence. And he draws connections to the grays and obviously artificial intelligence as the title implies. So, you know, it's interesting to see this topic connect in the past with Joshua Cutchins dives into folklore and more recent UFO lore. Uh, well, earlier UFO lore. It's, it's interesting to see how they overlap. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have another guest on to talk about aliens and all that stuff, but... We haven't done many episodes on that. I mean, Dave Zed kind of talked about what could be considered ET technology. But again, how do we know it's not just ultra technology, ultra terrestrial technology, ter technology given to us by some kind of interdimensional beings or underworld beings? Who knows? Um, I also just conducted an interview with a very interesting guy. Who knows a great deal about the Kurt Cobain suicide uh, and the bizarre facts around that alleged suicide. So that episode is now available on Rockfin and it will be out soon for you audio listeners. But you can get every episode early on Rockfin. You can also get my show Esoteric America for free on Rockfin. The newest episode is premium and then once the next new episode comes out the old episode becomes free so that's right now that's the only new free content that's going to my rock fin but all of the 
My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast episodes can be found on Rockfin early. I usually publish them the day I conduct the interview because it's just, uh, it's easier to edit the videos. I don't have to record any extra segments the way I'm doing now for the video episodes. All I do is create a kind of fun video animation intro with music. I've been really enjoying making those. So please comment. Let me know if you like those. Let me know what you think. I did an interview with Ryan Christian from The Last American Vagabond. And I made a video of Elon Musk dancing uh, with these weird magicians and scandally clad women dancing in the background. So it's, just, it's, it's fun. It's a videography project sharpening my editing skills in that realm if you like the show please support the show rockfin of course is one way to do that you can also sign up on patreon i just put out a new episode of the synchro wisdom dialogue which is open to all enters open to all who may enter the synchro wisdom dialogue all you have to do is go into the description of this episode click the link tree mystic mark podcast uh, at linktree and you can sign up for a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue session and join me on my very fun new Patreon show about you. Whatever you want to talk about, we'll talk about. Whether you want advice about podcasting, whether you want advice about life, maybe you have an idea or a theory or some research you want to share, hit me up. Sign up for a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. That's a good way to support the show. I value my time. I'm sure you value yours. If you value this show, send some value back my way with a one-time donation. I've got a Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, Ko-Fi store. However you prefer to support the show, we also have merch available. All of that is linked up in the description of this episode, wherever you're listening to the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, uh, or really any podcast player. I think we're on all of them by now. If there is a podcast player that you can't get us on, well, just copy paste the RSS feed and plug it right in and you'll have it there. Uh, and if you still have trouble, well, let me know and I'll do what I can to get on that podcast platform. Uh, I think Pandora might be the only one. Pandora and SoundCloud are probably the only two that I'm not publishing on. So yeah, those platforms suck anyways. I mean, for podcasts at least they're perfectly fine for music but i'm more of a spotify person when it comes to music uh, if i don't own the music myself if i don't have a cd myself i'll play on spotify if we don't have the vinyl we'll play it on spotify but uh yeah that's about it folks you know how to support the show you know what i'm doing i'm putting out three episodes a week we won't be putting out Illuminati Confirmed anymore, so I'm going to make up for that by doing a new show with Juan and, of course, sticking with the three episodes a week. Maybe we'll just do three My Family Thinks Some Crazy episodes a week. Who knows what we'll do. Uh, it's a new year coming up. We're almost at the 250 benchmark episode. Probably going to do something cool for that, so stick around and stay tuned. Wherever you are in the now, folks, wherever you are in the now. Uh, before I go, I just want to give a shout out to the Hit Kit, our only sponsor 
uh, here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. He is a listener of the show. He is someone who started his own small business, and I like to support small businesses. So hit him up. He's got the Hit Kit. He's on Instagram, hitkit.us. It's the number one way to stay lit with the Hit Kit. Keep your blunts and your joints safe and sound right next to your lighter. You can pass it around. People check it out. They'll see that you got the seven hermetic laws of power on your hit kit. And they're like, what the heck? The seven hermetic laws, not the laws of power. I was mixing uh, the title of a book with the seven hermetic laws. Uh, so, yeah, you know, that's one option. Or you can get a weird frog guy playing the banjo on a skull. Uh, you can get a wood carving of Hermes Trismegistus on your hit kit. Or you can get a custom design, whatever you want. Maybe you're a podcaster like me and you want to get a custom podcast hit kit. Hit them up. Let them know you've heard them on the show. I think I'm going to actually also create a special My Family Thinks I'm Crazy hit kits with the podcast logo on them so if you're an artist and you can help me create a clean simple logo uh, just like handwriting or block lettering or whatever you call that type of font font style logo where there's not too much design elements and it's mostly just a cool font that's what i'm looking for so uh, anyways enough about that support the hit kit support me oh also get yourself an aqua cure if you use the promo code mftic you'll get 20 percent off your aqua cure and that goes a long way for supporting the show george wiseman has sent us uh some affiliate payments for the people who have used the promo code and it's been very very helpful it's been a godsend so uh, thank you to George Wiseman for doing all the fantastic work you're doing. And thank you to all of you who picked up an AquaCure and used the promo code MFTIC. Although I have no idea who you are, my heart goes out to you and everybody who supported, especially people who heard about my car troubles this week and supported. Uh, that is very, 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 very appreciated. Uh, so yeah, one-time donations now more than ever are appreciated anyways i'm long-winded enough here on this monday episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast truly love you all i hope you're all having a amazing end of your year happy holidays if you're already celebrating holidays or if your holidays are coming up whatever you're doing this holiday season i hope it's a happy holiday season and uh yeah immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages, hijacking perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it 
The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling To the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robbing for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade